0: Welcome to Black and Green Review Podcast, episode 11. It is just now August 12th, 2018, and uh, it's been a little bit since the last episode. I apologize for that. I had started recording one and uh, had to pause it, and then I deleted it because uh, I'm not so good at civilization sometimes. So I apologize, uh, but I'll do my best to keep it up. It's going to get a little busy here with uh, black and green review number six, the deadline for that is coming up. It is September 1st. If you have something or you're working on something and you're probably not going to have it done in time, you can also just hit us up, uh black and green review at gmail.com. That's black and green review at gmail.com. And just let us know what you're working on. Uh, give us an idea of when it might be done. Uh, we do leave a good bit of time because the editing process is considerable Uh, So if you are working on something, you still have some time. If you want to get a letter or anything like that in as well, feel free to send it. There's some more information at blackandgreenreview.org, whatever the tab is. I forget. Sorry. Uh, But I think submission submission guidelines, uh, all that stuff is on there. So uh, if you have ideas, you have any feedback, anything you want to share, please do so. Clock is ticking. We're getting a little closer on that. Uh, but I'm looking forward to this issue, um, and I think that you will as well if you enjoy this podcast. Um, John Zerzen on Anarchy Radio, which is every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Uh, Pacific Time, uh, he gives a little bit of readings here and there about stuff that's going to be in the issue. Uh, so if you want to get little glimpses of that, you can get that from him. I do a little bit on here, but not quite as much. Uh, And if you're listening to this podcast, I would encourage you to listen to John's as well. Uh, It's a weekly radio show, not a podcast. So, that said, uh, a little bit of a plug here. I had a about half hour interview on It's Going Down's This Is America podcast. Uh, It was episode 21 from July 29th. So, it's been about a week and a half or so. Um, But, if you want to get my opinions on CEOs and people like that who want to be cryogenically frozen or want to colonize Mars, uh, some tips and suggestions from me as to how soon they should try and how much they should be willing to put their faith in current technologies that uh, they should they should act sooner than later. Uh, the the plan will be quite all right without them. So if you want to check that out, Uh, This is America, and the um, It's Going Down stuff is also on the Channel Zero network, which this podcast is on as well. So you should check that out. And I also want to give uh, some props to the Patreon folks and stuff like that that have helped me. Uh, I'm not particularly good at promoting that kind of thing uh, and asking for money in general, but it is massively helpful, particularly with... Uh, writing of gods and country and putting out books and maintaining websites and all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, there is a link at uh, kevintucker.org. Uh, I think there's there's some stuff on there for the Patreon, but I know on the blackandgreenreview.org page for the podcast, there is a Patreon and PayPal link as well. Uh, but we got... Uh, number six coming out and there's going to be more books coming out from black green press this year. So any little bit helps quite a lot and I am exceptionally appreciative of it. Uh, but the other thing too is that, uh, any, any support that we can get, anything that we can do as far as getting the word out, I really don't like using social media. Uh, and, uh, that, that makes it complicated. It makes it pretty hard, but, uh, you know, the books are for sale on Amazon. Um, it's better for us if you buy them through black and green instead. Um, but if you can leave reviews on there, if you like what we're doing, that is something I really appreciate. But for the most part, biggest thing is if you like the books we're doing, you like black and green review, like gathered remains, uh, let people know about it and talk about it. And that is a lot of help. And if you like the podcast, you can tell people about it too. And I do appreciate uh, the feedback I've been getting uh, and some of the conversations I've had with people because of it. So if you're interested in sending something or writing me, always feel free to do so. Uh, I have thought about making a uh, virtual voicemail or something like that if people want to call with questions to kind of get some of that conversation going. Because I know that uh, sending emails and sometimes letters, things like that can be a little cumbersome. But... Uh, yeah. Anything you got, anything you're curious about, let me know. I have thought as well about doing some episodes focused on themes, which I haven't done before. Uh, and I also want to do some interviews and things like that. So those are all kinds of things potentially in the pipeline. Uh, I was thinking about doing something on, you know, kind of explaining the, the anti-politics aspect, the critique of the left and liberals, um, as well as kind of the origins of anti-siv stuff and ideas and the differences in the approaches. If you're interested in any of that stuff, you're interested in anything you particularly want me to cover, just send an email black and green at gmail.org um, or use the submissions tab, whatever on the website if you want. Uh, but anything like that, I'll do my best. Like I said, it'll be kind of busy. So the episodes will probably continue to be a little bit spaced uh, for a little bit, but there is that. And, All that stuff is a big help. So let's get into this episode. All right. So August 11th, we are, I believe, today will be August 12th when this comes out. But uh, the one-year anniversary of the Charlottesville uh, Unite the Right rally and the murder of Heather Hare uh, and unique as well because it's the, I think it was Thursday, was the four-year anniversary of Mike Brown being murdered uh, in Ferguson and then the onset of the Ferguson insurrection, um, things that, that are recent history and are easy to kind of fade a little bit uh, with social media and with the the nature of how news is functioning at all right now and the complete kind of uh, disaster fatigue that I think anybody can have from looking at the news. But, you know, these these are big issues. And as much as people want to kind of push them back, I think that everything that's, that's come out since and all the things that particularly white people should have known about, uh, when, when all the news about Mike Brown and every, everybody else, so these other instances, instances of, uh, an armed, armed, black man being shot and killed by the pigs, the things that should have been known and are increasingly becoming clearer, um, such as in this case, uh, it was, it was found that, uh, I think a department of justice inspection showed that there was, uh, considerable substance to say that the Ferguson police department in particular, um, was overzealously ra- like racially profiling and, uh, creating this, this just general police state scenario that enforced institutionalized racism, uh, led to Mike Brown being killed and ultimately Mike Brown's murder, uh, Darren Wilson, being totally let off, and not just let off, he became a fucking millionaire in the process, which is insane. But you know, a friend of mine who lives in St. Louis, uh, I'm always really grateful. Uh, he posted of a a video. I'm not sure it was some maybe his YouTube. I forget. Uh, but doing doing the kind of thing that I think should be done. And there was uh, some people in his neighborhood in Southside St. Louis uh, who had the the I don't know what you call it the blue line. Pro pig flag kind of we support the police shit. Uh and just just straight up asked him, he's like, We're neighbors, what's the deal? Like, and the guy's like, Ah, oh, I support the cops, blah, blah. He's like, Okay, but you didn't do that until after cops started killing unarmed black men and being publicly held accountable for that, or being publicly called out. Of course they're not being held accountable, but in the social world, more or less. Uh and it, you know, kind of forced that person to be in that position to have to articulate that defense in a way that wasn't just reactionary, uh, particularly in this case, because he was his neighbor, uh, how far any of that goes, it's hard to say, but I mean, the whole problem that we have is that the internet is vastly making all these kind of situations. So just push button. And I've talked about this continually on the podcast and I'll continue to talk about it because it's not going away until that platform goes away. But the idea that the the more apparent an atrocity becomes, the more apparent this like abhorrent behavior and these ridiculous ideas and all these fucking moron, all right, fucking racists and shit like that, or trumping on about free speech and shit, like the more that those people are able to just react and just kind of have this knee jerk reaction and say it's like, oh, you're a bunch of fucking snowflake liberals or whatever. If you care about people, um just insane shit. It just kind of amplifies the entire situation to, it becomes this whole just partisan political issue instead of just, Hey, you know, the human got fucking murdered or something like that. Uh, or just, you know, that kind of passes on about anything. And the only way you can really break that is by pulling it out of that context. There's not going to be an argument that happens on social media that gets somebody to, wake up and realize as long as somebody's sitting on a computer, as long as somebody's sitting there typing on their phone, they're not engaged. They're not dealing with any of the content. They're just reacting. And that's why it becomes so much easier for these racist ideas that might have been in the background before to just continue coming to the forefront. And coming to the forefront as, you know, this completely ridiculous cycle. I mean it's it's really is laughable in a lot of ways, but it's fucking sad. Uh where you know somebody is feeling like they're defending themselves from uh some metaphysical kind of like oppression uh and so they're going on about people being offended or whatever i'm like just standing up for my free speech i'm just standing up for my right to exist as a white male or white whatever um and it it's just insane and i mean it's the nature of the internet that this kind of echo chamber is, is where we live and it's kind of giving people what they want. And you have various versions of it throughout historic time. Uh, obviously the church being a big one, the state being another, but this internet is really the way that the internet is with social media is really brings it down to that personal level of like self-validation and giving this as a platform for self-validation, but it's insanely insidious, violent and horrific proposals to to continue putting this in such racist nationalist terms but that's the direction it's going to head and that's the easiest way to manipulate people and to keep people engaged in the platforms and to keep people engaged in you know politics and all this other useless shit but there's no answer within the machine the only answer is to pull people out of that machine to pull people out of that context and just be like what the fuck are you doing like what are you saying instead of just getting that kind of knee-jerk reaction, need to show that there is a real life, real world consequence for all these things. Uh but yeah, so I'm gonna continue going on I'm gonna continue to go on about it, I'm sure. Uh but the the news about Mike Mike Brown's murder, um kinda came home a little bit more today looking at there was an incident in Washington State. I'm not really gonna go into it in too much detail, but just kind of a insane thing. You know, a white dude uh worked in an airport in uh, SeaTac uh in Seattle, stole a plane and just kind of joyride for a bit and then either got shot down or he ended up flying into a small island and dying. And that guy in the news is being given so much more credit Mike Brown, which is potentially the worst thing he might have done, uh, prior to being killed by a cop is jaywalk. Uh, so, you know, racism is alive and well. And if you need to be told that you got to start waking up, you got to start stepping away from your platforms. I mean, everybody should anyways, but you know, there it is. There's your wake up call. So in transitioning from that onto some of the other things I want to talk about in the podcast tonight, which is, uh, a little bit about uh, of Gods and Country, my book that I'm working on, and also uh, talking about some residential schools and stuff like that, which is a part of the book and also something that I've just been uh, getting more in depth with and everything like that, and also some some podcasts I want to talk about. Uh, but uh, in terms of just constantly mounting tensions in this general overall state right now, That we're in and it just feels like everything is is insurmountable and it feels like the uh, just seething insanity and hatred of civilization uh, or the civilization breeds is just kind of boiling over in every regard and it's impossible or stupid to say that that isn't the case Um, but I get a kind of common question often in regards to my work in regards to things that come out in black and Green view is kind of like, what do we do about all this stuff about hunter gatherers? Like, what is it would it matter? What is the significance of it? Uh, and I'm, I would say, and you know, first and foremost that hunter gatherers are struggling in indigenous societies right now. So absolutely relevant and absolutely deserving of attention and everything like that. But, um, you know, we're talking about existing anarchies. These are existing anarchistic societies, uh, and all the things that anarchists throughout the past 150 years or the things that anybody kind of wants to talk about, egalitarianism or equality or anything like that, hasn't dealt with or hasn't reconciled is within these societies. And there's a lot that we can learn in the fact that they are such a threat and the fact that they are being so much drawn into the fire, not just because, you know, resource extraction, uh, but because we, the very idea that there are, actually free egalitarian societies that haven't do and are struggling to exist is exceptionally significant. So there's, there's a number of levels at it. And the other part of it too, is that we need this outside look. We need to understand what it means to be a human animal. We need to understand what it means to be a social animal. Uh, So in every single regard, it's hard for me to, to answer questions like that because it's hard for me to see where it's not relevant. Uh, and the idea that because something is going on within our own society, or because we're dealing with something within a very short radius, which, for example, I'm I'm two hours away from Ferguson. Uh, I live in the middle of nowhere. It's a, it's a very different world, but I mean that's that's a very close kind of deal. Uh, but the problem is, is that you know if we're going to look just within this local scale and say it's like okay, well, what do we do about it right now? we kind of end up in the same political trap. We still end up in looking for solutions within the system or dealing with things that exist as they currently are as though they're going to exist forever. And when you're looking at human history or the human timeline, so much more of that is hunter-gatherer life, egalitarian life. 99.999% of this was uh, and has been egalitarian existence as hunter-gatherers. So we didn't change as people. We just changed because of our circumstances. And our, frankly, we didn't change much at all. It's just the conditioning that we have by proximity to where we're born and where we're existing. So the the relevance of it is really hard for me to escape. And it's hard for me to even articulate necessarily. But, you know, this is this is a huge thing. And this is why civilization is a global phenomenon. This is why it impacts all of us. But the the threats to... Uh, Indigenous societies, the threats to hunter-gatherers and horticultural societies and even small-scale agrarian societies, they face the consequences of, of the reality that the civilization has created and impacted. So we're all in this together. We're all in this situation. Some just get a much harsher, blunter version of the domestication process, of the civilizing process, than others. So there's a mirror there. And also a need to see this on a global scale, on a as something that is just considerably larger than us and our own experiences. So it's all very relevant. And of course, the other part of it too is by understanding that, understanding the longevity of uh, these various indigenous societies, particular hunter gatherers, versus you know America in general. Um, th- there's no reason to believe that the way things are are the way things are going to be, even in the relatively short term. So the idea that these societies aren't relevant because their subsistence base is different than ours is to me kind of horseshit. Uh, and again, not always the most articulate way to put it, but it's it's a different way to view the world. Uh, and it's something that I can't really escape from, so it, it, does, it does get hard for me to really explain it in a better way. But it's hard to see it any other way than to say, the way that things are are not the way that things have been most definitely and the way that they will be most certainly. So we need this view. We need to be able to pull back from our own situations and stop looking at and saying like, okay, but what are we going to talk to the police about? What are we going to talk about uh, as a community thing? And, you know, again, another thing I've railed on in past podcasts, and I'm sure I will again, the whole idea that online content, merits an actual discussion about um racism or sexism things like that you know it's just echo chamber and then you get reactions it's just all part of maintaining your position within the platforms and continuing to use them not actually making effective change outside of a very very small uh group or very small group's perception of what is happening at large so this is really important to me and i i continually come back to the concept of community and the concept of being uh, a wild, grounded community, uh, particularly in how that plays out in hunter-gatherer Society. And the idea of healing is a massive part of that. And when you look at it, so uh, I discuss this a a good bit in uh, my book, Gathered Remains, the essays, Hooked on a Feeling, and then again, the essay, Society Without Strangers, and it's also something that is a, major topic within the book I'm currently working on that I'm going to talk about more shortly of gods and country. Uh, the idea of these least um, healing trance dances and these, these communal events where people get together and they sing and they dance um, and just kind of hands on each other and just help each other heal bonds. And it's not like their life is so tragic that they constantly have to heal. But if you think about an egalitarian hunter gather society doing this, maybe once, twice a week, even prior to contact, even prior to colonial circumstances, you know, if it plays that much of a role in their lives to just be able to express, uh, you know, some of the, the fears and anxieties that come with being a social animal come with being alive. And then you think about the fact that within civilization, we don't do that at all. Like that, that says something that says something more about how we're missing so much. And it says so much more about why it's so easy to look at something like the concept of community and say, it's like, Oh, you know, it's a bunch of horse shit. It's like, Oh, is this like a church thing? It's like, no, we, we don't exist as individuals within a, a, our own world. Uh, we exist as a community and we need each other for healing. We need each other for subsistence. And just because as social animals, it's how we interact. We deal with each other and we are able to be, Whole individuals capable of helping other whole individuals in a band or in a community or in a tribe setting, and because that is missing, because that is taken from us, the entire concept of who we are becomes this really, uh, obviously politicized but militarized search for meaning. Uh, and that's what gives rise to all these different tensions that uh, gives rise to all these groups is people are looking for. You know defining who they are by who they are not and it, it's a necessary politics of negation to say um you know i am definitely not not an american um that's what it means to me and anybody who, who stands against what i am in a theoretical sense is my enemy and i will do everything to shut them down and that's what i think we're continually seeing even when you get groups like proud boys just proudly declaring themselves to be western chauvinists um just really kind of insane situations like that. And so it's it gets hard, too, on the same token to look at douchebags like this and be like, well, how are we going to have community when we have assholes like this? And again, we can look at the hunter-gatherers and see how they deal with conflict resolution uh, and find that there are times where, you know, being a, a happy liberal pacifist isn't going to work. Uh, there are some people that just need to be checked. There are some people that just can't be dealt with, and ostracized or being ostracized or uh, shunned and shamed are important things to do. And from a liberal democracy or veneer of liberal de- democracy, you get this idea that you have to take these people seriously, that you have to give them credit and things like that. And it's you don't, I mean, if they're an asshole, they're a fucking asshole. And in any other society where they can't hide behind a computer or hide behind a technological infrastructure, or hide behind institutionalized racism and sexism. That's what happened. But in this society got to go through the motions. And that's why it's a problem to continue seeing things in terms of this society alone. How are we going to deal with these people? Well, within the system, this is what you're allotted to do. And then, you know, Antifa has to feel like they need to justify themselves to the left at times because the left is saying, well, we can't fight hate with hate. It's like you can actually. You did. Uh you you should. I mean, how else do you respond to a Nazi? You don't be a smart person and become a Nazi. Just not how the world works and there's not many ways to deal with these people other than sometimes violence. Uh but the system won't fix that. There's no fix within civilization for this kind of rising tension and it, it's overwhelming. And if we can't acknowledge that it is overwhelming and it is horribly fucking depressing uh, that even even as an anarchistprist myself for almost 20 years now and to have been adamantly opposed to the idea of progress, you still get this idea of like holy shit, there's fucking Nazis in the street right now and cops are continually protecting them and that's how it's going it's like this is this is a problem that is not going away but potentially going to get worse as the state of the world, as the state of the the collapse of uh, economies and the collapse of the entirety of agriculture um, and the, you know, combating ideas of, of nationalism in place with a globalized society of the internet that people have access to 24 seven and seemingly live in 24 seven. As these conflicting things continue to rise, it's just going to get worse. And, And if we, don't start looking beyond the pale of our own knowledge and experience and our own circumstances and our own point in time, then we're, we're missing all of it. We're going to continue to miss all of it. So that's why, you know, it is, is all the more important to, to take this kind of historical, anthropological look just to kind of get our heads out of our own asses. If for no other reason, there's that. Obviously, the bigger issue is that these are societies are struggling. They do need support. Uh, And the least we can do is understand them, but, you know, you need to understand them in the context of saying, well, what can we do about it? How do we stop from, you know, committing ethnocide and continue to commit ethnocide and ecocide across the entire planet? Because the planet has worth, and that's not something I feel the need to philosophically debate. But that doesn't matter. So I wanted to... Read a little bit from A Society Without Strangers, uh, and I, I apologize, It's going to be a little bit of reading here tonight, because I also want to read a little bit from Of Gods and Country after this, but uh, this kind of deals with both healing and rising tensions. So this is from my essay, Society Without Strangers, that was in Black Mirror interview number four, and also in my newer book, Gathered Remains. The care of children is tantamount to the survival of the group. Alongside adultery, the primary cause of arguments among the Agta is careless and irresponsible use of a bush knife or bow and arrow with a campsite where onlookers, particularly children, might be injured. Mothers have been known to even go to blows with other women for verbally reprimanding their children. Everything is out in the open. There are no personal problems that escape the empathy of the group. The community exists to nurture each other. In our own society, we bury the pain, that conflict. We ironically leave, live in fear of what may happen to us as a result of external forces while we blind ourselves to the things that are likely to happen. Within the United States, the top 10 leading causes of death have almost no reflection in the fear-mongering politics of control. Almost all of those causes of death are preventable illnesses, cardiovascular, certain cancers, and diet-related. Accidents are the fourth leading cause of death, which includes drug overdose, medical mistakes, and automotive collisions. While suicide is barely trailing influenza and pneumonia, homicide, including terrorism, doesn't make the list. We return to the others. We focus on the common enemy so we can foster an artificial sense of group identity as we stumble through the motions of a social animal living in a sore replacement for community. We suffer alone, together. This is a society of strangers, individuals wound up, lost, and hurting, who are all willing to externalize their own inner turmoil a place where once-healthy individuals seeking comfort through fluid movement and affiliation are left without recourse for a shattered process of personal growth and cognitive cognitive development. This is the scourge of domestication. Neoteny, as Paul Shepard explains, is the process of stunting our development into fully aware and active beings, that is, into individuals capable of maintaining communities. This process of severing the competency of a capable adult is no accident. This is the need for agrarian societies. Quote, Politically, agriculture has required a society composed of members with the acumen of children. Empirically, it is about amputating and replacing certain signals and experiences central to early epigenesis. Agriculture not only infantilized animals by domestication, but exploited the infantile human traits of the normal individual in the End quote. Post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, is said to impact 7.8% of adults in the United States. It is two times more prevalent among women than men. Because of technology, we can suffer historically unique forms of brutality. As we suffer alone, without a cultural preemption or recognition of that probability, it is not surprising that one of the wealthiest nations has such a high rate of PTSD. Considering our refusal to acknowledge the possibility of infant mortality and the silencing of women's voices through patriarchy, the disparity between men and women having PTSD should not be surprising. Surely, as nomadic foragers, our brains are built to withstand stressful situations. Life in the wild may not be nasty, brutish, and short, but that doesn't make it stress-free either. Infant mortality is a looming tragedy, but it's not alone. There are a lot of harsh ways to die living in the wild outside of homicide falling from trees while collecting honey, being bitten by snakes, being attacked by predators, facing periods of hunger and weather extremes. Most of the situations are not necessarily lethal, but, by and large, nomadic foragers aren't suffering from PTSD, even though they may likely have dealt with a number of these situations. I believe the difference comes down to the acceptance and acknowledgement of things that can happen. If the community is aware and capable of mitigating these tensions and possible sources of stress, then they need not become traumatic. No one suffers alone, but the civilized do. We become lost in our trials and tribulations, left to re- reiterate them or refuse to cope with them a, in a the dance of neoteny. We become strangers, mere neighbors, a concept that, prior to domestication, had no significance, no social meaning. And this permits us to both perpetuate and permit sy- systemic violence. This allows us to remove our sense of responsibility from the world and each other. It keeps us from giving children the space to explore boundaries and find themselves among friends. It keeps us from seeing and believing the violence of the state. With 7.5 billion people, we have created 7.5 billion variations of how the domestication process has fucked with our minds. We all create our uniqueness through how we have endured as individuals. Dependent on the law to control and mitigate our unresolved conflicts, we give away our ability to become self-sufficient, both physically and cognitively. As Stanley Diamond stated, Schizophrenia is the process through which the inadequacy of the culture is concretized in the consciousness of individuals. We become fractured. Our punishment becomes self-propagating. Diamond continues, The development of the early civilizations as instruments of oppression was the result, not of some environmental or technical imperative, but of the new possibilities of power which men in certain positions found it necessary to cultivate and legitimate. Domestication is about the med- dependency, and that is what we are, dependence of the custodial state. Each of us is born to be a child of the forest, and because of a child of the machine, through indoctrination. Our own pain becomes a justification for pushing further and further into the depths of the mechanisms of the state. And as the power to respond and resolve is taken from our hands, it is given directly to the state. That unresolved, unreconciled tension of existence tightens the shackles. So again, that is from Society Without Strangers, which was in Black and Green Review number four, and also my book Gathered domains uh, So before we get into some of this other uh, stuff I want to get into, instead of a music break, I'm going to do a poem break. Uh, so Joan Kovach is now an editor of Black and Green Review. Welcome aboard, Joan uh and uh she's awesome. She's got some really amazing writing. Uh and I have to say categorically I wouldn't say I care for poetry, but I do like really good poems and that is a difficult balance to walk. But somebody like Joan does really awesome work and not just poems, but uh and as you will see in Black and Green Review number 6, but um she has offered to do readings of her poems for the podcast and i am very pleased to put them on and have a place to put them so uh this is her poem timing and hopefully all the audio works out fine because it is good great even
1: this poem is called timing Today is worth all the sunshine I never got while standing behind a counter waiting for the next consumer. Like a glass washboard between my knees, gathering food in the woods and bathing in the creek aren't the most important tasks in the world. Yesterday is every moment I was strapped up in that strange carriage whipping on who knows how many horses with the tip of my toe that should have been stepping silent over dewed grasses hunting a turkey before some government officials proclaim it's too late. We all know the king's forest is still the king's forest, but his foresters can't cover every shadowed step that I tread, nor will they ever set a season on a wild heart. Tomorrow is the best of hunts, glittering sunlight, otters in the water, the turkey that just stands there staring, beard trailing, and my arrows all handmade because thank all the gods, all the shops are gone, and all store stands for anymore is what you manage to put up for winter, which is cold as ever, but warmer for the fierce heat of wild blood finally set free. The past is a broken shackle on a Walmart wall. Technological perfection of human subjugation, whispers of never forgetting blur over the fact that when we dig beyond the history that was correct enough for publishing, we unearth a hot-blooded world of creatures living in fierce, fucking, feasting, dying balance. The future is the anticlimax of every marketing campaign, since survival has nothing to sell but itself, and we are writing the stories in bones and blood on hallowed ground tearing them out of our chests and flinging them into new songs that arise from the fire. The ashes might whisper blasphemies of domestication, but we'll mix them with rendered fat and use them to clean up in the morning before stepping back, as creatures, into our apocalypse.
0: Thank you, Joan, for that, and I look forward to having more from Joan in the future, and also, of course, in Black and Green Review itself. So, uh, for the rest of the show, I wanted to talk a little bit more about my book of Gods and Country, The Domestication of Our World. So, I've talked about this a bit on previous episodes and kind of alluded to it at other times, Um, and in, in a way, working out of Gods and Country kind of prefaced the entirety of this podcast uh just cuz the material i'm dealing with uh is difficult and also a lot to digest um and i've felt the need to talk about it more than i have other books just cuz one um well i should say first that they the explain the book a little uh so there's there's kind of two aspects to it and it's interweaving two narratives and on the one hand you have uh the story of the origins of religion, nationalism, and patriarchy uh, in terms of understanding how domestication makes these uh, forms of division and hierarchy and specialization possible. So starting out by looking at the primal anarchy of nomadic hunter-gatherers, immediate return hunter-gatherers, and then seeing how domestication in, in minutiae in sedentary hunter-gatherer societies or in horticultural societies Changes the way that people impact or interact with the world um, so you have a move from healers to shamans and to priests uh, and you have uh kind of this this uh, a term that I used in the book or kind of a quote I got from an anthropologist about the cosmology of an amount of hunter society was that they saw the world in less exact less measured terms um and there there's a lot to it and there's a lot that um, obviously, that's why I'm writing a book on it, uh, but a lot of uh, nuance and a lot of things that I think that we can overlook and a lot of things that we can kind of take for granted, uh, one of those things being that uh, anthropologists and missionaries and writing down the stories of uh, indigenous societies tended to treat them as religious gospel or gospel truth, uh, and the people who who told the stories never intended for that to be the case and were never literate societies to begin with and never interested in writing down their stories and always interested in the stories evolving with place and evolving with time and kind of always having uh, some some immediate form of uh connectivity with the world as they experienced it and it didn't matter if the story was literal or not it didn't matter if people had different terms um and that's that's a, a constant theme throughout that and another theme that will come up into Black and Green Review number six. We've got a contribution from a uh, Peter Gardner, who is a anthropologist and he was a big part of the uh entire re envisioning and re understanding of uh hunter gatherer societies that started it with the man the Hunter conference in nineteen sixty six and moved on from there. Um some really great perspective and I'm really, really glad to not only get to know him personally, um, but to have writing from him in number six uh, and also getting, you know, it's a lot of support and blessing on the work we're doing with black and green review and with my writing in general. Um, but to, to tell that story and to tell where these things come from, for me, it, it really comes down to, you know, understanding the the role of domestication in undermining community and you can see that in very small parts and it also requires us to reassess what it means to be a social animal and we do so by looking at these egalitarian societies um, and understanding how they function not so we can just say like boilerplate replicate what they're doing or anything like that but just understand how they function because we've been so far removed from that by the domestication process that you know, we kind of need a kick in the ass. We kind of need to be told or at least pointed in the right directions to say, you know, all the certain we have with the world is such a circumstantial, briefly historical kind of perspective. And here's where it comes from. Uh, and, and so there's there's the, the two narratives. On the one hand is where religion comes from, where gods come from, where patriarchy arises, where division of labor comes from. Uh, And then the, the counter narrative that is uh, the impacts of missionaries and colonizers on the people that I'm talking about. So it goes, it opens with uh, talking about uh, an instance where uh, five missionaries were killed by the Warani in Ecuador, uh, which was kind of very famous and helped catapult this post-World War II era of Um, modernized missionaries, particularly made possible by small aircraft that was able to get into tighter places, Um, typified by Summer Institute of Linguistics, which is also Wycliffe Bible Translators, and um, New Tribes Missions. Both of those groups uh, still exist today, are very, very active, Um, so you know, this is this is very much a living history. This is very much something that continues to go on and something that has massive impacts. But the the reality of understanding kind of the ingenuity of the societies and the way that they function, um counterbalance with what we are willing to do to crush Decimate and kill them so that we can have access to the resources, so that we can turn them into resources a lot of the times. These people then, when they're decimated or thrown into missions, thrown into residential schools, uh, is typically to become slaves. Very common when they're not killed that slavery is the outcome. Uh, And that is something, again, very, very common and still very much happening. And I've discussed particularly episode eight. uh, There's a two-parter where I talk about the Aceh, which is the main subject of chapter three, um, dealing with the Aceh genocide uh, from Paraguay. So um the book is difficult and I had originally I think planned on having it be a little more overview with a couple case points and in working on it and writing it I can't do justice to the subject without going more into detail on everything and I've taken this 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 habit of mine just kind of follow all leads and the the book just keeps getting bigger and the research and the digging gets deeper. Uh, Ultimately, a lot of exceptionally depressing things that come up in the process, but that's the ugly nature of colonization. Again, a very current, real, ongoing situation. So I, I think I had mentioned even on the podcast that I planned for that book to be out or to be finished by now. Um, and that is definitely not going to happen. I'm not really putting a timeline on when I think it will be done. Uh, I hope sooner than later, but I, I really feel like doing justice to this means that I have to continue the path I have, which is just continually digging into this stuff. Um, so I want to talk about one of the subjects involved in that and talk about the residential schools and things like that, um, a little bit, but before I do so, I think I'm actually going to read a little bit from the book, which I have not done yet, publicly at least. Um, so the the setup to this section, uh, this is from chapter three, and it's talking about the missionaries as agents of colonization and agents of genocide, um, particularly focusing on the Ache and Paraguay, as I mentioned, uh, but how missionaries approached uh, immediate return hunter-gatherers. And you had this kind of common thing, uh, this common theme where because nomadic hunter-gatherers are so uh, based in, on being able to move to avoid both conflict and to be able to move around in ecological and social sense and be able to have this vision, fusion culture where all the individuals within it are capable of subsisting uh, but choose to come together and want to be together. But it means that group identity is very loose. Uh, there's not a need for territory. There's not a need for really, uh, extravagant uh, sharing terms and things like that that you'll see in a lot of other indigenous societies. Uh, but it's meant that there's, there's an innate resilience to this way of life. And that when there are ecological or social issues or political issues as they do arise, um, because of neighbors, then the answer to the solution is that they can just typically go further into the forest or go further into uh, what, what colonizers would consider unusable land. And so, you know, the technology created by world war two or fostered and developed in world war two made it possible to keep going further and further in. Uh, and you get the same kind of thing that happened with like the rubber boom or uh, a lot of the um, 18th, 19th century, technological innovations related to industrialism that kind of kept pushing uh, the Northern Hemisphere further and further into the Southern Hemisphere as colonizers and as just, you know, just decimating the entirety of the earth. Um, but what that means is that there is an initial contact that typically happened with hunter-gatherers, and there were no, there's no way that anybody was avoiding colonization, particularly in the first blows. When, when Europe really started to expand around 1400, uh, and really colonizing the world, uh, really, really starving for resources, they a lot of people died. Um, particularly the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, uh, they were some of the original missionaries to try and set up things, and uh, they were different than a lot of other groups in the fact that the Society of Jesus would actually physically own land that it had built settlements and missions on. So they become uh, very much a plantation in their own right, which is exceptionally telling for the relationship of missionaries to colonization. Um, And there, there's a whole other side to it as well, which is, you know, the manifest destiny aspect. Um, You can't split religion out from colonization in any way, shape or form. Uh, The justification people always have for why they're doing what they're doing is because, you know, this is our God given right. uh, Or in the case of the pagans, like our God's given Right. To colonize and decimate and own and conquer. Um, naturally, I have issues with that, uh, but you you do see this kind of constant thing where, for hunter gatherer societies, there are all these initial hits, um, and they have resulted in a lot of deaths And in some cases, I am sure, many cases, there are hunter gatherer societies that were completely wiped out because they do not have warfare. Uh, they don't have uh, this you know kind of concept of a, a state or society that a lot of other agrarian societies or horticultural societies or settled hunter-gatherer societies might have, which made it possible for them to have extensive warring contact with colonizers, as it happened in many other places. And that's kind of an unfortunate part of reality, is this thing that's so wonderful about these societies and the fact that they didn't have a need for warfare. They they didn't have, they, they had so many other forms of conflict resolution involving healing and involving the ability to move that they were just able to avoid any kind of premise for having actual war. It's not that they didn't have violence. Uh, it's not that people weren't killed or anything like that. But there's a difference between an individual case of, of murder and the organization required within a society to actually get a war party together and conduct raids or conduct warfare, battlefield warfare. Um so it is kind of this unfortunate turn within historic time that this thing that is so great about these societies and the way that they function ended up being uh, you know, something that kept them less prepared to deal with with colonizers if they did come. Which is why you hear a lot more stories about indigenous resistance from uh, more structured tribal societies. It's something I discuss in the book at, at length. Um, and I'm, I'm sure, again, it'll come up on the podcast quite often. But what it meant was that it was the post-World War II kind of technology that was created and even the post-World War One technology meant that there was kind of a silence, that there was this initial hit of a lot of these colonizers, particularly the Jesuits. And then things kind of died down and then and around uh, – the the Turn of the nineteenth century you get another hit and then after World War two you get a huge hit and that's when a lot of governments were using um, missionaries it was like the particularly current missionaries so you got like some student linguistics new tribal missions and offshoot groups like that, and also um, Muslim and Hindu missionary groups uh, taking the same very active situation this active colonial situation to become the agents of Colonization and the agents of uh assimilation as they would put it in all these cases, and it's because news was spreading so much quicker about uh slavery and about some of the colonial encounters and colonial conditions that this supposedly humanitarian spin was supposed to be different it was supposed to be better it was supposed to be about you know saving these people and you have you have this rhetoric all throughout and you get it, you know, um, as we'll see, as we get to in the residential schools, the whole idea is we're going to kill the Indian and save the man, uh, famous quote from, uh, one of the founders of a residential school. Um, but you know, that, that's the idea. And they, there still is this idea that missionaries are better than any other form of colonization. And that, um, there's, there's something about the fact that they aren't, they aren't seen as taking part in genocide or they aren't seen as taking part in um, you know, killing these people and they they're supposed to be interested in saving them as humans that one is bullshit and complete bullshit. And two is also just has to show with how much, you know, we really are in this constant state of survivalism where it's just like, well, at least they weren't killed. Uh, but you know when you're a grounded society when you're a grounded individual that matters a whole lot more it matters to all of us and that's why it's really important to talk about intergenerational trauma and it's really important to understand domestication itself as a trauma process uh both so we can understand our own situation but we can really start to see what it looks like by looking at these situations where it is a a a force to be reckoned with where this is really being forced On other people and you know carrying forth that just insane survivalist colonized frontier mentality of like well you know their culture doesn't matter the thing we have to do more than anything else is assimilate and then that means destroying their culture Uh, so in that case uh, I mean I think that there's no better or worse here there's no better or worse between you know missionaries and colonizers as far as who's the better or worse colonizer Uh, and that's not something I'm interested in doing um, but uh, missionaries really just get a pass. They just get this massive pass. And when you're looking even for books about missionaries, uh, like if you look on Amazon and shit like that, um uh, those books are buried, totally buried. The the churches and particularly, the, you know, especially the Roman Catholics after a lot of these pedophile scandals have come about, they put a lot of money into advertising, Uh, I mean, these are mega churches and everything like that are exceptionally massive and rich corporate entities that are given uh, a tax exempt kind of status. And they're given a lot of free reign and free will because people believe like, you know, you're religious for a good reason. And that's, it's not true. Uh, We turn to religion because it is, you know, this part of ourselves, this idea of community that's torn from us and bastardized and sold back to us. Like there is a reason that we do go to it. That just shows how insidious this entirety this whole civilized project, this whole civilized endeavor really is. So in this case talking about the Aceh uh particular, because the missionaries, the Summer Institute of Linguistics missionaries, uh particularly this guy uh, Stolz, was m- monumentally instrumental in the genocide of the Aceh. And at the in the sixties and seventies they had gotten down as low as thirty individuals left and uh, just completely decimated, and you see these parallels between that situation and other hunter-gatherer groups. So in this section here that I'm going to read, I'm going to talk about the Hadza, and it's really the only reason I'm choosing this one is just because it's kind of a shorter, more concise section. Um, all the stuff on particularly Aceh and on the Kung is very long. Um, so here's my first little glimpse of, of gods and country. Let's look at the Hadza. The first attempt to settle the Hadza was in 1927. British agents hoped to sway them towards farming. The Hadza were unconvinced. The British failed quickly. In 1939, the British attempted once again. As is typical in a frontier situation, the official overstepped his authority. The Hadza weren't having it and, once again, left. 1965. The Tanzanian government wins independence from the British. Taking a page from the rest of the world, the government taps an American missionary to create the settlement at Yaida Kachini. A school and a clinic are built. This time echoes the moves of unified missionary and government alliances elsewhere, with all the usual and horrific aspects. Hadza from even the most remote bush camps were taken to Yaida in trucks escorted by armed police. The camp ultimately only lasted a few months, but it was absolutely devastating. The ecology of Bush life becomes more apparent in its absence. Movement is the great cleanse. It keeps you from building up waste in any particular area, from overexerting it ecologically. Culture is that you know where you are, you know where you are from, and you dress appropriately. Settlements strip that culture. Missionaries take it upon themselves to correct that lack of godly shame that Adam and Eve found the sin of free will if hunter-gatherers weren't ashamed by their brazen displays of relative nudity, then it was their job to reinforce it anyways. Given foreign clothing, processed food, and sedentary conditions, but without access to clean water or their own lifeways, the things that Westerners take and give for granted become a curse. In the short time spent at Yaida, the toll was mighty. Respiratory and diarrheal infections spread quickly spread and tragically a significant number died before they abandoned the settlement to return to their foraging life. Death was little deterrent. It was not civilization that had failed in the eyes of the colonizers, but the roughness of the environment, or perhaps it was the evil lure of a less con- consequential life in the bush. Either way, it should have been enough. The Hadza should have been left alone, but we know that they were not. It happens again. This time the settlement for the Mangola Hadza, lasts from 1971 to 1975. Same story. The settlement was meant to encourage the Hadza to take up agriculture, but this was no easy feat in the savanna. Outside of sheer force, the Hadza were drawn in because the surrounding ecology was taking a hit and, well, there was free food. This was a trick of both missionaries and government agents, one used universally. But missionaries were quite fond of it, provide food and encourage settlements, then used farm foods to sway hunter-gatherers to pick up agriculture. A classic civilized ethos. Exposure to civilization would result in the will to be civilized. Having known no other life ourselves, we tend to take the bait a bit too aggressively and miss the obviousness that no amount of candy can sugarcoat the misery that civilization brings. Hunter-gatherers don't come in to eat free food because they're starving, but because there's free food. It's adaptation, but doesn't require adoption of the ideological and pathological disease of the hand that feeds. This was never conversion. It was faultless opportunism on the part of the Hadza. The success of these settlements in terms of numbers was equally unimpressive. In 1973, dogma held 31 Hadza. In 1975, the agencies forced their hands cutting food aid during a drought. The crops failed. The Hadza did what they would have done anyways and walked away. Missionaries aren't so easily deterred, unfortunately. Another failed attempt to settle Yida in nineteen seventy nine. Missionaries took another shot in october nineteen eighty six. I cannot state this forcefully enough. For all their concern with salvaging souls, that if you that if you need a reason to actively oppose missionaries, their continual and wanton disregard for living people should be enough. The goals of the government are apparent enough. If the Hadza are exists, exist, they can use farmers, not hunter gatherers. In a grotesque reduction, farmers are of economic value. But for missionaries, if you take them on their word alone, which I don't, then what can justify this level of unbashed recklessness? Because their earlier attempts to settle the Hadza had led to unsanitary conditions that resulted in the deaths from lung infections and diarrhea, neither of which sounds anything like a peaceful or enlightened way to die. They sound absolutely miserable, and it is even worse because they are absolutely avoidable. And yet here we go again. As a direct result of the 1986 missionary flop, you have more deaths, this time because of measles outbreak that caused the death of many children. If the missionaries are correct, which they are not, and Satan exists, could he be worse than this? The excesses of colonization are apparent everywhere, but to bury your own children to appease the existential fears of outsiders? How malicious do you have to be? How many children's bodies does it take to show that if this god does exist, that he should be resisted? The Hadza left children buried all for nothing the missionaries were undeterred 1990 this time missionaries aggressively coerced Hadza to settle Mango wa mano officials told the Hadza that the missionaries had no jurisdiction to hold them and they left you can see this pattern over and over again but I can't recount it without constantly wondering both how and why it happened the first time let alone the eighth more importantly Why should the attempts to settle the Hadza under the rule of the missions be seen differently than those on behalf of governments, because of supposed intent? I call bullshit. We absolutely cannot forget that missionaries are foreign or non-governmental agents, often individuals bolstered by international organizations, hedged and defended by laws surrounding religious freedom and rights. Remove heaven from the equation. Forget about salvation. We can't and shouldn't judge the acts of colonizers and civilizers by supposed intention, they should be judged on their actions. Even their mere presence is complicit. These are the questions that must be asked because missionaries go under the radar often. The Hadza case shows without question, without reprise, that the missions of Christian conversion was, at best, a complete failure. Even with the efforts of NGOs to get the Hadza to take up honey farming at Mongoano Amano was a failure for reasons that might be apparent by now. Quote, The immediate return or orientation of the Hadza is difficult to change. Tending hives that will produce much later is something alien to them, whereas checking on wild hives when they are on a walkabout is not. End quote. What has been lasting and permanent are bodies stacked up in the settlements, and yet the missionaries continue their actions, only becoming increasingly more predatory. Movement of individuals meant that social tesh- tension could be qu- squashed. Enforcing the hazard to take up settlements, the means of conflict resolution are robbed of them, furthering the divisions in an already divided community. Missionaries can actively bolster the government positions of settlements and assimilation, so the removal of conflict resolution methods is intentional, not incidental. As the Hadza continually face a struggle to maintain rights of access and subsistence in their homelands, the agitation of internal turmoil ensures that the self-organization necessary to fight for land and community rights is never able to take hold. Never one to miss an opportunity— Summer Institute of Linguistics tried to set up and failed uh, their, set up their own mission in 1997. Among current groups involved in the Hadza is the Tanzania Assemblies of God, TAG. The religious services are built around one main goal of TAG to encourage the Hadza to take up agriculture. That is their stated goal. The actual actions, again, are all too familiar. The church steals the young Hadza children, sending them off to Moshi near the border with Kenya. To work as domestic servants in the homes of the church members, slaves, by any other name, of the eighteen children taken between nineteen ninety seven and two thousand, fourteen were young girls. On the scale and intensity, only the scale and intensity change. The story, long ago etched into stone, remains the same. This is colonization. This is ethnocide. This is genocide. So again, that is a segment from my upcoming book, uh, book in the works. Uh, of Gods and country. uh and I'll probably be reading a bit more of it on future podcasts but um if you have ideas or you have things that I should know about or lead about in terms of missionary conquest uh and missionary practices, residential schools, and things like that, I very much appreciate any appreciate any leads that I can get uh, I got a lot I'm working with um and I know that some people have asked for some missionary reading lists and stuff like that or anti missionary reading lists. Uh, and I will get those up somewhere sometime soon. Um, it is pretty scattered, though. Uh, so uh, speaking of, I got a lead from Candace. Uh, and I'm very appreciative of for a podcast done by CBC News in Canada uh, called uh, Missing and Murdered. Uh, so the podcast takes a look at and, and it seems like CBC has a pretty strong series or, or number of articles and news things that they've been working on in terms of uh, really uncovering both the consequences of the residential programs, reservations uh, on the native populations of Canada, but also the exceptionally high and often unaddressed um, issue of the murder of native women. Um, There's a a highway, I believe it's called highway of tears is the name they have for it. Um, And, I forget how many unsolved murder cases there were, but I think it was like 50 or 60 uh, native women killed along this stretch of highway or dumped along this stretch of highway alone. Uh, but the, the second episode or this, I'm sorry, the second season with the podcast was focused on a story called finding Cleo. Uh, and it's the upside of it is, is that I, I heard that they've got like 10, point, ten and a half million listens on that. Uh, and I, I don't really listen to podcasts. Not even this one. Um, I'm not going to, not a madman. who's gonna subject myself to listening to my own voice, but um, uh, that one is worth checking out. I don't give a lot of podcast recommendations, but that one is this is one is definitely worth checking out. And it's something that for both America and Canada, but there's there's correlations throughout for throughout the entire world about the residential school, missionary school, settlement programs uh, that have gone on and continue to go on until recent times, as I've mentioned about. Hadza had a tag runs these schools and all these missionary programs set up these kind of schools instead of these kind of systems or help work with the governments to coordinate building these systems. And they use the translation of the Bible uh, or the transcription of native languages as the premise for doing this. And of course, for most cases, the idea is to get them to just speak English. Um, Usually that's the language of the missionary. Uh, There's cases where it's Spanish or Portuguese as well. Uh, but for the most part, a lot of what we're seeing is is English and this really super aggressive uh, form of conquest. But the podcast uh, deals with following individual cases of murdered women um, or women who have died, Native women who have died, and digging in on that and doing kind of this, a really solid deep dig on the entire um, clusterfuck that is, you know, colonization and the reservation program particularly over the last 40 or 50 years Um, and you can see how the the nature of colonization just is just this completed assault and again talking about intergenerational intergenerational trauma uh, for a lot of these groups you don't have contact and you don't have the direct contact with europeans until late 1700s, or until early to late 1800s, and you can get up to places where, you know, you're you're on the west coast, or you're particularly far up north, and some of that contact didn't really happen even until the mid 1800s, is late 1800s, and you know you go down to South America, uh, and uh, through a lot of the Philippines, and the, sorry, the South Pacific Islands, and places like that, and there are still societies where there are uncont- or places where there are uncontacted societies. And I hope it remains that way, but it is the explicit and latent goal of New Tribes Missions and Summer Institute of Linguistics to contact all those societies. Um, So this is something we can't look away from. This isn't something we can't pretend it not happening, and we can't pretend it isn't happening in all different places. But I think it's it's important to keep in mind that, um, you know, we're often talking about the kind of concept of like or how indigenous societies speak, there's not necessarily a future or a past. Uh, so we tend to think that, you know, they just live in the present. The present for a lot of the societies is a combination of past and future. The idea of isolating where we are is the product of, of historicization, uh, by having linear time, by having calendars, we made it possible to isolate where we are from everything else. And if, for obvious civilized reasons, um, you know, that, that kind of distancing is important. If you want to create a bunch of fucked up individuals who are going to, you know, just try to get their own and just try to make it right for themselves, then they need to be able to, you know, psychologically separate themselves from everything else that's happening in the world and the world itself. So what you see again, to to repeat myself here, uh, by looking at these particular instances is just how much breaking it takes to to become civilized or to be civilized or to follow along with domestication of course it's not a physiological biological change it's just a uh social one um but it is massively significant and it's ongoing and the way that we perceive the world as civilized people is 100 percent impacted by this worldview that we've we've been impregnated with um from birth and uh, you know, facilitated primarily by technology in every regard. And in these cases you have, you know, the grandparents of some of these, these people or some of these peoples are you know, were the ones who had direct confrontation with the Calvaries, um and with, you know, just violent decimation and products projects of stealing land uh in Canada in cases there uh, unceded land in America is a lot of cases where, you know, various backhanded deals to create, um, the transfer of land rights, the transfer of land ownership in a technical sense that had no bearing in the world of the societies they were largely dealing with. Um, but you get that and then you get, uh, the entire reservation complex, uh, missionary complex that we, we see used everywhere where you're trying to decimate people and, um, get them to lose all aspects of their culture and everything they know about community. And of course to reduce their subsistence abilities to being dependent upon handouts and, uh, the government favors that they hand away. And then they say, well, you got to work for them or you got to pray for them or whatever it is. Um, the goal is always the same is to, to reduce everything from the, those people, uh, until they're just wage slaves or just slave slaves, which is quite often the case. Um, so that podcast does a really good job of digging in on that. Uh, I strongly encourage it. It's something I am going to get into significantly and I've got the country and I've been digging in on more and more. Uh, but it's, it's not something that was off the radar or anything. Um, and I remember in the early two thousands going to, uh, what was once Carlisle Indian school or residential or it's the Carlisle industrial school. I think it had been named both, uh, which is in, uh, Harrisburg outside harrisburg pennsylvania is carlisle uh it is still an active military base uh, and if you go there are there's relics everywhere when you go in there's a cemetery um right by the front gates and it's just native children um a lot of nameless graves that just have you know where they're from and boy or girl uh just meaningless and their whole the only thing that they they were they thought to do or the only thing they thought was necessary was to give them a fucking Christian burial uh, if they couldn't give them a name and force them into this, you know, slavish situation. Uh, So you have that as another generation, you know, right there. This is these programs and these schools have gone into the very recent future or the very recent present. Uh, So it's, it's an ongoing tragedy. We had, one generation here facing direct open warfare with colonizers. You have their children and grandchildren having this situation where they were separated, forced into residential schools and taught to hate their culture. And so there's, there's a a bit about that as well. And there's this book I've got education for extinction from David Wallace Adams, American Indians and the boarding school experience, 1875 to 1928. And just to give you an example of the kind of things that happened in these schools and it was a very rough situation a very much a forceful violent situation that you know these indigenous children were put into and they were torn from their communities and they were put in with a bunch of other kids that spoke different languages and they weren't allowed to speak their own languages and had every vestige of their own their own culture removed from them but they were also put in these really grotesque situations where, you know, they could write letters to their parents, but the parents wouldn't necessarily get them. Um, so they were left with this idea that their parents had abandoned them, um, you know, physically and emotionally just breaking these individuals to nothing. So they could be as miserable as we are and accept that, you know, they needed to accept Christ in their lives and go to work. Um, but from this, this book, education for extinction, He actually has some of the letters that were written back and forth, the parents' response where possible, and also what I'm going to read, which is a couple of the essays that the Native kids were forced to write. Um, So these are two short examples from Native students at the Hampton Hampton Institute. The Caucasian is the strongest in the world. The semi-civilized have their own civilization, but not like the white race. The savage race kept their own ways, and they have had these occupations. They were hunted, fished, and fought to the other people. They beat, too. The white race have three occupations, agriculture, manufacturing, and commerce. And the second one, the white people, they are civilized. They have everything and go to school, too. They learn how to read and write so they can read newspaper. The yellow people, they half-civilized. Some of them know how to read and write, Some know how to take care of themselves. The red people, they big savages. They don't know nothing. It's hard. (laughs) It is hard digging in on this stuff. It is hard reading that. And I'm already a bit too angry of a person to do that. Uh, So I have a hard time. Dealing with the fact that this is living history, this is this is something that's ongoing and constant. You know, the people who wrote these letters, the people who had to write these essays and things like that. Uh, you, there's most of them, are, a number of them, are still alive, uh, and their grandparents now, uh, and their parents. And you get again this intergenerational trauma. You had this whole culture, this whole generation that was taught to hate themselves and hate everything about the culture that they were, so they could just be miserable enough to accept that they needed salvation. And it's patently unforgivable. There's simply no other way to put it. The, in, the breaking process and the, the deprivation possible to reduce children, in this case, specifically children, to just hating everything about themselves and hating everything about everything they've ever known, uh, just it grinds at you. And it should make you fucking angry and that's exactly how i feel it, it just constant and then the the follow up that happens and this is something that missing a murder podcast does get into is you know then these people this, these families and everything these parents and individuals they came out of the residential program and they were dumped back into the reservation a lot of the time and so there was there'd been abuse there had been physical abuse sexual abuse Um, And, of course, these things are very much ongoing on reservations. And if you look at a lot of where the the Catholic priests, after they've been uh, called out and accused of of pedophilia, some of the worst offenders are sent to places like northern Alaska and northern Canada where they are sent with indigenous children that have no voice uh, and are not going to be heard. So, I mean, this is exceptionally living history. This is continuing to go on. But the children of the parents that went to the residential schools and came out of them horribly fractured. Um, they had their children taken off of them. And then you had in the sixties, there was this, this program in Canada called the 60 scoop uh, retroactively called the 60 scoop where children were stolen from their parents and then put up for adoption by the state. And there's these ads, um, which I'm not really going to go into detail because I think you should just listen to the podcast and, and I'll leave it at that. But to to sell these children and say like this, you know, this is your right as a Christian person to take this kid from a horrible situation that is the conditions of native america or native americas and to save them. Uh and it's just I mean it's awful. Uh but that is that is the real history. That is the continued history and a lot of these people are still alive. Those who haven't committed suicide. Or haven't died because of, you know, alcohol related deaths, accidents and things like that, um, fall out from these horribly traumatic situations that are very recent. Uh, but it it all feeds into this idea that you know, the the civilized way of life is something that people want or something that people need, something that can save and something that can give you meaning and give you a place and give you purpose. Um which just isn't true. It's a fucking lie. And it is a constant lie. And when you understand how much force it takes to enforce that fucking lie, it should make you want to just fucking take some shit out. I mean, it's, it's, it's horrible. It's enraging. And it's the whole time. I mean, this thing that I kind of constantly come up against i uh, and, and hit when doing any of this kind of research, and when you look at the frontier situation, even when you look at slave ships and and the entire history of the slave trade, the survival rate for slavers for people who were working on the slave ships, the survival rates for loggers and anyone on the frontier was so low, horrible. I mean these people were drunks, they were addicted to any kind of drug they were getting. most of them were rapists and pillagers um and just dying pretty fucking awful deaths, very very commonly themselves. So why did it happen? I mean, that's it's a, a an important question to ask, and I think that that's kind of the subtext that I keep finding, even though I didn't intend to, with when I'm working on stuff of gods and country, um, because I'm a culture materialist, and I do think that the the means of subsistence for a culture determine a lot about how that culture actually shows itself but in this case you know the ideas of god didn't necessarily create civilization the ideas of god aren't why people went around that's just the justification that colonizers gave for why they were doing what they're doing we're a storytelling animal and we need the story but the story is shaped by our cultures so it's it's crazy to think that this this story of religion, the story of nationalism, the story of potential wealth and, and the importance of context were enough to motivate all of these fucking assholes to just don on this full wool suit and this full wool clothing and go into force to cut down trees that were bigger than anything they'd ever experienced, to kill animals larger than anything they'd ever seen, and to just absolutely decimate and kill and conquer and colonize Free egalitarian peoples or free societies that were much freer than themselves, uh, and were functioning. Uh, not that none had faults. Not that you know all of them were, you know, hunter gatherers or, or horticulturalists or whatever. But I mean, that's you know, that's another issue. But it just it takes so much work to maintain this. It takes so much work to get here, and we take so much for granted, and we're so willing to grant ourselves the space to take credit for the things that we like about civilization. We can look at an iPhone and be like, "Well, this is this is the product of our ingenuity." It's like so is a fucking deforested world. And as the world is literally in a place where it is right now, where it is just fucking burning and you see the entire west coast is burning and you have the the orange bastard the fucking moron tweeting about how they need to just cut down all the forests and stop putting, letting water go wasted by going into the ocean. I mean, like this is, this is the kind of pathological situation we wind up in. This is the logical conclusion of being the children of the children of children of miserable fucking assholes who are willing to do willing to risk so much and destroy so much for the prospect of, of making a little money. Uh, and, and, just short-sighted idiocracy. Uh, but we can dance it up. We can we can prance it around and we can hold our play with our little technologies and things like that and feel like there's a sense of achievement in it. But these are the consequences and nothing about any of this stuff is is over. None of it is done. There are still many places throughout the world where bloggers are going out and, and still exceptionally high-risk uh, and you know there's poachers, and there's tree poachers, and there's people who are you know uh, rebel groups supporting you know whatever whatever group it is to have shanty mines where they're digging up resources to go into your cell phone, um, so we can give ourselves the space to uphold what we consider the collective accumulated knowledge and ability and and whatever we want to consider beauty of civilization, but we don't take any of the fucking credit or responsibility for the flip side of that. And that is always destruction. There's always decimation and we have to break that pattern. We have to break out of that habit and not allow ourselves the distance of history and the safety of history to shield ourselves from the consequences of this way of life. And by doing so, it becomes exceptionally possible and likely that we see just how much it takes to maintain civilization, how much it takes to maintain you hitting a light switch and it turning on or a 4G Wi-Fi signal or potentially a 5G signal when it happens. It takes a lot of fucking work and it takes a lot of fucking destruction and it's this is what it is. And we just have to step back and we need to take this look to understand what it is so we can actually do something about it. And it turns out, that you know the the want right now with the internet with all the social media and especially with the alt right bullshit is people will say it's like well I'll discover my origins and it comes from you know I'll get a genealogy test and I'm gonna find out where my ancestors came from and then I can dig in there and most of us are like myself fucking Eastern European mutts or Western or totally European African Asian mutts that we're we're just rooted to a lot of places we're rooted all over the world we have no distinct culture that we can immediately draw back to. And even if we did, those people were probably assholes, just the nature of it, the way that the world has been shaped by industrialism and conquest. There's not much worth digging into on that personal level. Uh, A lot of these cultures are hybrids of colonizers and all the colonizers have been colonized themselves. What is true? What is universal? is that we are nomadic hunter-gatherers. The way each and every single one of us is born has been shaped by the world that we inhabit and the world that still exists that we con- that we conquer and colonize nonstop. So if you're looking for some meaning, that's where it is. It's not going to be found in your fucking genealogy test or whatever. It's not going to be found in a, a culture that your grandpa had in Europe that lasted for 25, 40 years before it was taken over by somebody else. It's in this common shared lineage of wanting and being an egalitarian hunter gatherer ourselves and being forced through the domestication process. So again, uh, a very roundabout way of saying like, yeah, you know, this shit matters. It doesn't matter if, you know, you live in the middle of a city in the most industrialized area of the world or the most post-industrial consumer society, utopia that that might ever exist. The hunter-gatherer stuff fucking matters. This is who we are. This is the world that we inhabit. These are the consequences of our way of living. And we need to deal with that. We need to confront it. And it is fucking depressing. But it needs to be done. And... You know, there's, there's been so much talk uh, in virtually every other part of the world about truth and reconciliation. Uh, personally, I believe in truth and retaliation, but that, that comes down to just saying like, we're, we have to look outside of civilization. We have to understand how civilization functions and how civilization propagates itself so that we can do something about it. And that, you know, that just has to be done. We have to be honest about the consequences of civilization so that we can do something about it and so that we can move on from it and start the process of healing because while this is going on, we're just going to be spinning the wheels and that's all we were ever meant to do is spin the wheels until we burn ourselves out. And in the meantime, be as productive as possible be good consumers and whatever else, and just inherit the guilt of civilized existence and the, the shame and depression of being isolated from everything and being sent to work and that is not enough we need to be digging we need to be exposing and undermining all these institutions and showing what it takes to to make them possible and how they maintain themselves (sighs) yeah so uh looking for a positive note to end on um not not much one the upside is, is that the world isn't dead yet, and you're not dead yet. So there you go. There's still the chance to, to find that animality within you and to, to do something about it when it comes to decimating all these cultures. Um, but uh, I'll save optimism for another time. Uh, I appreciate you listening to the podcast. Uh, and if you like what you hear, you want to hear more, blackandgreenreview.org. Uh, there's a tab for the podcast. You can find past episodes there. Uh, I think some are on iTunes or whatever podcast platforms. And then uh, Channel Zero uh, Anarchist Podcast Network also has them as well. They're all on Archive, uh, which isn't as easily searchable. So just go to blackandgreenreview.org. You can search there. There's information on that page for helping donate with Patreon or PayPal, which is massively appreciated, as I mentioned. Uh, there's also information on the books that I write and the books that we publish, including Black and Green Review, uh, my new book, Gathered Remains, and uh, a number of other titles as well. A lot more coming out still in the very near future. Uh, if there's things you want me to discuss, if you have feedback, review at gmail.com. Again, that's Review at gmail.com if you want to send me a letter it's black and green p.o box 402 salem missouri 65560 again that is black and green p.o box 402 salem missouri 65560 and again the deadline for number six black and green review number six is coming up pretty soon here september 1st so if you are interested in contributing if you have ideas or things that you'd like to see Blackandgreenreview.org. I'm sorry, or, uh, blackandgreenreview at gmail.com. And uh, send us an email and let us know what you're thinking. All right. Uh, until next time, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Woo-hoo!
0: This is M1, MA1, MA one la gente, Intending, You feel me? I'm one half a dead press to tell it like it is. Everything is political rap duo. Here, holding my middle finger up to imperialism worldwide. And you in tune right now to The Rebel Beat. The Rebel Beat is a monthly podcast of radical political music across different genres and across different continents. It's the mixtape to a riot against police brutality. It's your nightly newscast set to bass and beats. It's protest anthems from Hong Kong to Istanbul to Ferguson to Montreal. Give it a listen at rebelbeatradio.com or subscribe today on all your favorite podcast platforms.